Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Ethan Hawke, is a serious actor. And for Hawke, that means putting up with the indignities of celebrity. Part of your job is to be made fun of. Part of your job is to start conversations. I mean, I love that Ellen Ginsberg thing about, you know, he would go out on that talk show on Johnny Carson or whatever, and he would sing Hare Krishna stuff. And somebody asked him, about it, he said, you think I don't know people make fun of me? It's my job as a poet. You know, I want them to lie in bed going, what was that guy doing on that show, making a fool of himself? It's Bullseye. Coming up, I'll talk to Ethan Hawke about how making the movie Boyhood informed his role as a real-life father. We'll also talk about why he now sees his child actor stardom. It's kind of a double-edged sword. You're giving up your opportunity to make a first impression at an incredibly young age, and you don't even know it, and it's just gone from you. And uh, I think it made it harder than it needed to for me to, to find an identity as an adult. Then later I'll talk to Michaela Watkins. Over the last 10 or 15 years, she's played supporting characters in a bunch of great shows. Saturday Night Live, Trophy Wife, Transparent. Now she's starring in her own series, Hulu's new show, Casual. Finally, it's her face up on the billboards. Somebody said to me, if you could just show your 18-year-old self, like this poster or whatever, you know, happening right now, don't you wish you could just do that? And I said, absolutely not. Because if at any point I felt like everything was going to be okay, I wouldn't have said yes to the millions of terrible jobs that I did (laughs) that got me here. And I'll tell you about the rapper who brought elegance to hip-hop. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Ethan Hawke's been acting for 30 years. His first role was in 1985. He was barely a teenager. In the time since, he's been in films like Dead Poets Society, Reality Bites, The Before Trilogy, Gattaca, and Hamlet. He was nominated for Oscars for Boyhood and Training Day. And he's always acted on stage, too, from weird experiments to big-time New York theater. And he's written. His new book, Rules for a Night, is his third novel. It's a set of parables written as a letter from a medieval father to his children. Each parable is about a virtue and... Hawk says that he wrote it for his own kids. Ethan Hawk, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. It's great to be here. Did you have, uh, like, a, my children are teenagers, what's going to happen, personal crisis before starting to write this book? Maybe. I mean, the whole idea of this, this has been something I've worked on with my wife, you know, off and on for, I guess... You know, about seven years or something, uh, she was reading a book about step-parenting and how difficult that is. And, you know, and in this book was this whole chapter about the value of rules and how just because, you know, kids who are going back and forth between houses, one of the things that's really hard for them is, you know, their mom lets them look at the computer and watch movies. Their dad doesn't. Their dad lets them have ice cream. Their mom doesn't. And they can play that against the other parent and... Uh, and one of the things that's really hard about being a pa- divorced parent and, you know, trying to co-parent together is there can be a lot of guilty parenting going on. 
because you want the kids to like being at your house. And it can really mess with the way that you want to raise your children. And, and this book was talking about the, that there's this idea out there that kids don't like rules. They, oh, they all hate rules. But in fact, it made the case that rules were a wonderful wall. And my wife and I started thinking about what are the rules of our house. And we had this idea of putting up a list of rules from the house. And then we started thinking about wouldn't it be fun if, like, the king and queen decree, you know, must be in bed by eight. And, you know, it started out as kind of a joke. And then slowly I started realizing I don't really care about rules about television and when you can use your phone and when you can't. As much as I care about you know, the ethos behind why we behave certain ways. And and then I, I started challenging myself to, you know, it, it started as, as, as a little gag. I thought there was going to be like, you know, five rules or something. But I really enjoyed writing it. And I had, I'd come across this great Sullivan Ballou letter. A, he's a soldier in the Civil War and he wrote a letter to his ki- his wife. It's a beautiful, beautiful letter before he wrote out to battle. And I was touched by it and I kind of imagined that wouldn't that be fun if we imagined a knight riding off to battle and he was worried he wasn't going to see his kids again? What would he leave to them? And so for years, I've just tinkered with this idea of a book, writing it, rewriting it, adding a rule, taking away a rule. Um, and now here it is. Were there things about your own uh, childhood and youth that you wanted to teach your kids about? Like uh, things, not just things that uh, you wanted them to know specifically about you, but like things you wanted to guide them away from or towards. I think the hardest thing for me as a parent um, that I really didn't expect was to what extent my experiences are a little irrelevant to them, Um, that their childhood is so completely their own and that they're really not having my childhood. And I I think that I thought that they would. You know, you ever, I found myself, particularly with my son when he was young, buying him the same toys that I had played with. Like I wanted him to have my childhood in some way. I mean, I don't think this is intellectual or conscious. I just, I think I just imagined that's what childhood was. And so it must be the same. And yet his childhood's very different than mine. And, you know, with a daughter or somebody of the opposite gender, it's a little easier to not make that mistake. But Accepting your kids on their own terms and speaking to them in ways that are relevant to them and not, you know, really trying to just make all these assumptions about what it's like to be them. You were an actor when you were a kid. Your When your first film came out, you were like uh, 14, 14 or 15, yeah. Mm-hmm. When Dead Poet Society came out, you were still a teenager, I think, 18 or yeah, something. 18. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously especially Dead Poet Society, really gave you the opportunity to have this amazing career as an actor. Um, but I wonder if we assumed that you could have uh, started your acting career at, at 22 or something and had a similar career, uh, would you would you choose to have done that if you had the choice as a kid? If you're asking me what I would advise another young person, I would strongly advise them away from any childhood acting, especially if you're really serious about wanting to be an actor, that I don't I don't think it's healthy for a young person and to, to, to enter the professional world too quickly. I've always been really envious of the actors of my generation who had some time to find themselves 
before they were a public entity or celebrity or whatever kind of word you want to call it. I've always envied that. Becoming isolated from the rest of my generation, which is what happens when you become famous, the way all of a sudden, you know, you don't fit in with your own peer group anymore because you're the kid from Dead Poets Society. Hey, that's was, was he the one who killed himself? No, he was the one who stood up on the desk. Oh, I didn't like him. Whatever it is, you, you're giving up your opportunity to make a first impression at an incredibly young age, and you don't even know it, and it's just gone from you. And uh, I think it made it harder than it needed to for me to, to find an identity as an adult. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to the actor and writer Ethan Hawke from Boyhood, the Before Sunrise series, and Training Day. His new book is called Rules for a Night. You quit acting in between your first gig and uh, when you were Between Explorers and Dead Poets Society, yeah, yeah. I quit professionally acting. I mean, I acted in school plays and stuff like that. I want to know what it was like when you were acting in school plays. (laughs) What are you doing, like, Our Town? I didn't do Our Town, but I did Glass Menagerie and The Matchmaker and You Can't Take It With You and um, uh, She Loves Me, a musical. I mean, you know, the the truth is that acting in school plays is exactly like acting in movies. I mean, it's all the – it's like playing music in Madison Square Garden isn't different than playing music on the high school talent show. It's – I mean, the difference between acting in a school play – and acting, you know, in training day or something like that, it's it's essentially the same element. You know, the world isn't that complicated. It's just a question of how many details are you able to hold and are you able to convey and have artistry over. I believe all of what you've just said, Ethan, but I still think it would be weird to be in Oklahoma with a guy who had been in a movie. Yeah, but what you, you forget, if you're talking about like being in Oklahoma with me after Explorers came out. Yeah. Like... Yeah, but you know, kids are weird. They don't care. Explorers was a bomb, and kids made fun of me for being in it. And it was like I wasn't as good because you had your chance and you blew it. You know, kids are very cruel. That was an incredible, painful couple years of my life, in truth, the years after Explorers. River Phoenix was my friend, and he went on to, like, great international stardom and here I was at this school in New Jersey doing in these school plays with kids making fun of me. And as I look back on it, I mean, insert violins now. It wasn't say it was the best ground I could have learned on. Like if, if I were to rewrite my life, I would write that part exactly the same. Because by the time the success of Dead Poets Society had happened, I was so conditioned to accept failure because of Explorers. I mean, I was just, you know, for two years, I had this reoccurring dream. They were remaking Explorers with all the same people except someone else cast in my part. And this great feeling like I'd let everyone down, that I let River down, I left Joe Dante down. Um, And the irony is now, you know, people really like that movie, Explorers. And it it makes me so happy when they do. uh, Because I believed in Joe. You know, Joe, that's a wonderful thing about getting to be an actor is, you know, you, you, you believe in the writing. You're selling the writing. You believe in the director. You're selling this director. You're trying to make this vision complete, you know, and it's such a rewarding feeling when that goes. But so I won't, don't think you would have struggled acting in Oklahoma with the guy had been in a movie any more than you'd struggle in Oklahoma if there was a guy not in a movie in it. 
How do you think the fact that that uh, that Explorers was uh, at least in mm-hmm. your eyes such a failure um, shaped the kind of work that you wanted or were willing to do in the future? Because I mean, it seems like um, you know, failure and being told no uh, are two of the kind of cornerstones of an actor's life. Well, I think anybody who's pretty serious about trying to have, um, you know, like a substantive life in the arts, like if you wanted to call it that, you know, the part of your job is to be made fun of. Part of your job is to start conversations. I mean, I love that Allen Ginsberg thing about, you know, he would go out on that talk show on Johnny Carson or whatever, and he would sing Hare Krishna stuff. And somebody asked him, about it, he said, you think I don't know people make fun of me? It's my job as a poet. You know, I want them to lie in bed going, what was that guy doing on that show, making a fool of himself? You know, I remember I did a Tom Stopper play once, and he said, you were the tip of the spear. He said that to the whole company, you know, that all the ideas can't penetrate if you don't penetrate. And uh, it's exciting. A lot of times I've, you know, Explorers is only one example of a great number of times that, I've had things that were perceived as failures that were secretly successful. You know, like Gattaca. We couldn't get a good review for Gattaca when it came out. Before Sunrise, you know, was a big bomb. And yet we made three sequels and people ask me about it wherever I go. Um, you know, when we first screened Boyhood, um, nobody wanted to release the movie. You know, cause, you know, they wanted uh, big studios to release it. You're con- anybody, when you're in the life and the arts, you're constantly being met with failure. And that's part of why when you start asking me, do I think kids should do it? The answer is no. Nobody needs that much failure. You don't need to get punched in the nose that many times. You want to you wanna be in shape before you get hit in the nose. Were you afraid of failure when you wrote your first novel? I'm afraid of failure all the time. Uh, of course, I, I, don't, I want people to like this book. You know, you don't put this stuff out there for people not to like it. I mean, as much as I just said, that's not. I want them to get it, but you, ultimately, I'm not in charge of that. You know, I, it makes me feel really good. I remember I saw Sean Penn in Milk, and I was just I thought that perform. Just when I was, for some reason, you can have a low end point. You're like, ah, what is acting? Acting stupid. Why do I do this with my life? And then I saw Sean Penn in Milk, and I was like, that's what I want to do with my life tell stories, make people feel... I would like to do lighting on that movie. You know, I'd like to push the dolly on that incredible shot. Uh, uh, I want to help produce that movie. I want to be a part of it. I remember my daughter once when she was listening to um, Annie. You know, she was listening to the soundtrack and they were singing that song, Maybe, Maybe Far. You know, and she just had tears rolling down her face and after it was over, she was like, Dad, how do I get inside that song? And I felt like that is... a that's what I've been trying to do my whole life. And um, and sometimes it doesn't work out. You know, you people off, you do a bad job, whatever. I, I, but it's still worth trying to get inside of it. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to the writer and actor Ethan Hawke. His new book is Rules for a Night. I saw that you ran, ran a marathon the other day. Mm-hmm. Have you run other marathons before? You did. By the way, you beat I, in the article that I noticed that you, you know, it just listed – uh, people who had run the New York City Marathon. Uh, one of them was Tiki Barber, the uh, former NFL star. And uh, yeah, you, I had, love Tiki. you had him beat pretty squarely. So congratulations well, on that. 
You don't know what his goals were. Do you know what I mean? You don't know. I really don't. Yeah, probably his so goal many was people to get, that, Probably his goal was to get beat squarely by Ethan Hawke. He's a pretty cool guy. I, I bet you. You never know. Sometimes people are getting over an injury. You, I don't take any pride in that. The the I. That's a mistake. My, I want to be absolutely clear. It is a mistake not to take any pride in that. Right, I'm not right, saying right. that you have to put the man down or that he's not a great guy. I just think mm-hmm. that's pretty neat. Look, man, I never did anything so hard in my life. Uh, I trained for it. My wife is a really good runner. I thought it was going to be a ball. It was a ball. I had so much fun. People on the streets. You know, it's like being a part of a human river. There's so many people that ran it so much faster than me. And 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 I was doing really well. And then about mile 20, it was like, you know, when they were having those ships, the planes trying to break the sound barrier and the whole thing would just come apart. When it, That's how I felt like my body just happened. I hit mile 20 and I felt like I left my kneecap on, you know, 118th Street. Or I, everything was just, <laughs> I couldn't believe I finished. Um, and uh, so I, I was, I could care less about my time. I did, there's a certain euphoria that comes along with doing something you didn't think you could do that I, I was happy about. I wonder how, you know, you, uh, I, I don't think I need to tell you this, but you, Ethan Hawke, were one of the, the stars of a, a film called Boyhood uh, that came out last year. And, you know, it's a movie about growing up. And I wonder, I wonder what spending all of that time with that story made you think about and, and, and in part how it affected how you thought about your own kids and uh, and about this book that you were probably by then like a, you know, wrapping up that was mm-hmm. like advice to your kids. It was like a big guided meditation for me on fatherhood. And, you know, I mean, Rick, let me, you know, he and I are both children of divorce and I had gone through it as a parent and he he really gave me an opportunity to create a character and um, to try to encompass that experience of fatherhood and from the vantage point of, you know, when I, when I would think about who my dad was, when I remember when I placed myself at six years old, first grade, and remembering my father and who he was and what he looked like. And then when I see the man who was there at my high school graduation, you realize that that he went through some massive growing up as well. And Rick and I would talk about that and we'd try to dramatize that adult maturation process. And so, of course, as I'm playing that, I'm also, you know, my my own kids were just a couple years behind Ella and Lorelai. And so I was always getting to rehearse and improv scenes with Lorelai and Ella. And I'm learning a lot about what's ahead of the road for my kids. So there's this dual thing that's happening in your brain, which is this, you're remembering these experiences from your own childhood, simultaneously trying to portray the experience of parenting. So you're seeing it from both points of view, which is really exciting. I don't know. I mean, I bet you everybody out there knows that there's that when you see an old movie that you saw as a kid and when you first watched it, you watch it as understanding from the kid's point of view. And now you are relating to the grownups in the movie, which is a really strange or a novel, same thing, you know. I'll finish my conversation with Ethan Hawke after a break. We'll talk about how he still gets mistaken in public for some of the losers he's played in movies. Not that he would call them losers. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. 
Support for this podcast and the following message come from Bleecker Street, presenting Trumbo. Who was Dalton Trumbo? To some, he was the Academy Award-winning writer who authored the novel Johnny Got His Gun and the screenplays for Roman Holiday and Spartacus. To others, he was a dangerous subversive who was blacklisted by Hollywood for his political beliefs. Starring Brian Cranston as Dalton Trumbo, Louis C.K., L. Fanning, John Goodman, Diane Lane, and Helen Mirren. Written by John McNamara, directed by Jay Roach. Trumbo, now playing in select cities everywhere Thanksgiving. Thanks for listening to Bullseye. NPR's brand new politics podcast is where NPR's political reporters talk to you like they talk to each other. With weekly roundups, short takes on news, and reporting from every stop on the campaign trail, you don't have to keep up with politics to know what's happening this election year. You just have to keep up with them. Listen and subscribe to the NPR Politics Podcast at npr.org slash podcasts and on the NPR One app. Hey guys, we're going on tour this week. We'll be in Los Angeles, Boston, New York, Philadelphia, and D.C. this week and next, putting on live tapings of this show with interviews, music, comedy, and more. We've got William H. Macy plus Matt Walsh and Brian Husky of HBO's Veep in L.A., We're going to have Tavi Gevinson from Rookie Magazine, David Cross from Arrested Development and With Bob and David, Mission of Burma, former Congressman Barney Frank, Ray Suarez, Dan Deacon, and a whole bunch more. Get your tickets at bullseyetour.com. That's bullseyetour.com. Phillies sold out as I read this, so run and get your tickets for L.A., Boston, Brooklyn, D.C. while they're still available at bullseyetour.com. Dot com. It is going to be awesome. I promise. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to the actor and writer Ethan Hawke. His new book is called Rules for a Night. I'm going to play a clip from Boyhood. Okay. You played, as you kind of alluded to, a, a divorced father. Uh, and there's two kids, one of whom is played by Eller Coltrane, one of whom by Lorelai Linklater. And... Um, so in this scene, the, the, you are visiting the kids and the three of you are driving to a bowling alley and um, you're trying to have like a uh, uh, let's share our feelings, dad is here conversation and they are being kind of stubborn about uh, not wanting to do it. Talk to me. Samantha, how was your week? Uh, I don't know, Dad, it was kind of tough. Billy and Ellen broke up, and Ellen's kind of mad at me because she saw me talking to Billy in the cafeteria. And you remember that sculpture I was working on? Well, it was a unicorn, and the horn broke off, so now it's a zebra, okay? But I still think I'm going to get an A, right? Mason, uh, how was your week? Well, Dad, you know, it's kind of tough. Joe, he's kind of a jerk. Actually, he stole some cigarettes from his mom, and he wanted me to smoke them. But I said no, because I knew what a hard time you had quitting smoking, Dad. How about that? Is that so hard? Dad, these questions are kind of hard to answer. What is so hard to answer about what sculpture are you making? It's abstract. Okay, okay, that's good. See, that's, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know that. I didn't know you were even interested in abstract art. I'm not. They make us do it. But, Dad, I mean, why is it all on us, though? You know, what about you? How was your week? You know, who do you hang out with? Do you have a girlfriend? What have you been up to? I see your point. So we should just let it happen more naturally, right? One of the things that I found very moving about boyhood was the way that it portrayed a divorced father. And I don't know, I, I guess I wonder... You have you have four kids, uh, two with your first wife and two with your current wife, and I wonder if you think about 
the way it's different to parent kids who are only with you part of the time, and and whether that was part of what you thought about when, when you wrote this book. Absolutely. I mean, it's the thing I'm probably most, the secret pride I have in boyhood is getting to do a, a positive portrait of a father trying to raise his kids from that vantage point. Part of what prompted us publishing this is that my oldest is graduating this year. And, and when it was first written, it was her that was really going through all these life issues. And one of the things, you know, how you actually behave is so much more important than what you say. You know, you can say the right things, but if you're not doing them in a daily way, then it just, you know, kids, they, they pick up what you're doing. You know, your life is your message, not what you say. Everybody says don't tell a lie, but lots of people lie. And when you lose all this time with your kids, you, you lose the ability to to affect them in that nonverbal way and just let them be a part of your work life, let them know your friends, let them... There's so many things that are, are challenging. And I think I felt a real desire, particularly for Maya and Levon, my, my oldest, for them to know how I think. And I wanted to talk about religion. Um, my my parents were both very religious and, and I, I took a lot of positive things from that. They're very Christian and and it was had a positive impact in my life and and I'm not I I don't you know I don't go to church every Sunday and I but it, there's a certain bit of being aware of your inner life that I was asked to do as a young kid that I really appreciated and, and wanted to ask my kids to think about and but I also didn't want to talk a lot about God and um I challenged myself to write about all of what I thought were the most interesting issues debates perceptions of you know, the difficult questions you ask yourself about being alive without mentioning God. Like, wh- why do you, why tell the truth? Why be kind? Why be compassionate? What is honor? What is chivalry? What are these ideas? What, what's the root of where these things live? And for certain people, that's that's rooted in, in their faith. You know, it's, it's and um, for those of us that don't have uh, a daily you know, meditation mapped out for us or a priest as a mentor or something. You know, it's, it's a little harder to to find your way. And I, I think that I was just desperately seeking more communication with my, my two oldest. And that's, that's so writing this, reading it to them, giving it to them, it gave us an excuse to talk about some of these ideas that are somehow hard to talk about and that were usually brought up for me in, in Sunday school. I want to play this clip from Reality Bites from 1994. And you, Ethan Hawke, my guest, played a character named Troy who was kind of a classic, slightly aimless, uh, artsy type, an unemployed musician. And uh, Reality Bites in part is a a kind of a love story or at least a love triangle uh, between your character, Winona Ryder's character, who's a young filmmaker, and Ben Stiller's character, who's um, a guy who's like a producer for MTV. So in this scene, uh, your friendship with uh, with Winona Ryder's character uh, it gets complicated because the two of you have slept together and your character is really indecisive about what he wants for the relationship. And there is a bunch of tension and then there is this big argument at a club uh, where your character is about to perform with this band. It happens. I thought we could uh, work it out, you know? I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know if now's the right time for us or... Uh, Look, 
I meant everything that I said to you last night. I mean, don't look at me like that. Don't look at me like that. That's not what I'm saying. I'm, I'm not saying I... Look, you are the only woman that I could ever commit myself to. What? Do I get a medal? I win the big commitment cook-off and you just run away? I knew this was gonna happen! I knew this was gonna happen! I don't, I don't want to lose you. I've, I've never been in an experience like this before. I've never had sex with somebody that I loved before. Well, congratulations, Troy Dyer. Welcome to the world of the emotionally mature. It's a really nice place to visit. Hey, you may run into Michael. He lives here. Oh, yeah, right, Michael. Michael, he's so mature because he lets you navigate that entire relationship. Well, I'm sorry, Lelena, but you can't navigate me. I might do mean things, and I might hurt you, and I might run away without your permission, and you might hate me forever. And I know that that scares the out of you because I'm the only real thing that you have. Well, that ain't real much. Um... Uh, you, I mean, there's no doubt you sound 20 years younger. Yeah, um, no doubt about that, huh? But I have to say, like, I was 13 when this movie came out and went to see it. And I think I have been uh, racked ever since uh, because I've and, – and have resented you for no through no fault of your own uh, because I always w- felt just like, man, this guy's being such a – and I guess we'll have to bleep this out. This guy's being such a – I was always so upset that he got to be this tortured artist. I guess because I I felt like it 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 took such a such an amount of chutzpah that maybe I wasn't able to uh, manage to be a to to have this sort of self indulgence to be a tortured artist. I, I wonder how you felt about it at, at the time, and especially about like kind of like being the symbol of that uh, in some ways for uh, for this weird kind of. Uh, a generational movement, you know? I guess the hardest thing is that for me at that time was that people really thought that was me. You know, yeah. like, so... I just admitted to that, so... Yeah, <laughs> so many people, like, think that that's who I was. And so I, I would get hit with a lot of anger about it. You know, I remember when my first book came out, I often thought a lot of critics who were so angry at the movie, they were, like, angry at Troy. <laughs> you know, they, they like thought I was Troy Dyer. And um, and one of the things I love about that movie is what you just said. Both the guys are kind of, you know, that, that and, and so and people are. I mean, that's the one what, what I like about that movie is that nobody's one thing. You know, what you resisted, what you buck at when you're 13 is that you want this one to be a good guy and that one to be a bad guy. And, you know, but young women are faced with. Every, you know, they give these boyfriends and one of them's got this problem and the other one's got that problem. There is not the guy who has no problems. You know, we're all struggling. You know, Troy has his issues. He's, he is in ways more, has things more on the ball than Ben Stiller's character. In a way, he has less things on the ball and, and he's got to earn his way out. As opposed to seeing, hey, you know, these two people got married really young. These two people, it's a very common situation to fall madly in love and not know how to live with one another. And you don't know why he went to Alaska. You don't know if he invited everybody. You're only seeing it from the kid's point of view. Kids don't, interestingly enough, kids don't know or care why their parents split up. They don't care. They just want to love you. But, you know, we always want this one to be good, that one to be bad. Whose fault is it? That's kind of what makes that movie wonderful is how exasperating it is about 
it's just we all want everything to be so clear. Who's nice? Who's bad? He's good. He's bad. It's like he used to me off a lot with Boyhood when it came out. Like people were like he's a bad dad because you know he went to Alaska. They they just they would get so latched on. They're so attached to this idea that any guy who's divorced must be a giant jerk. You know, because somehow his marriage failed. We create these narratives in our head all the time that play out. Hey, before we go, can I tell you one funny story I wish I said about that marathon? Yeah, of course. It really was one of the coolest experiences I've had, which was, I told you I was running and I was cramping and all this. But there was this guy, you know, sometimes he'd be 500 yards ahead of me, sometimes 100 yards. Sometimes I'd lose him. And then he kept going back and forth. And he had this Hakeem Olajuwon jersey on. And um, it was a very bright red jersey. And I remember, you know, Olajuwon beat the Knicks in 94 when I was, you know, it just broke my heart. And I played this little mental game. And I'm like, well, if I could just catch up to this guy and, you know, pass him, then something in the universe will be righted. The, you know, Patrick Ewing would have beaten Olajuwon and I could contribute in this way. And, and then my legs started cramping up. And I couldn't run it. And then there he just ran far, far away. Then I finally, you know, got started running again. And I caught up to him again. And because his legs were cramping. And then we had this little kind of back and forth where he would go ahead of me in front of me. And then right when I crossed the finish line, from behind me, I heard somebody yell, Hey, Anton. Hey, Anton. You want to know how I made it? And it was the cue to my favorite line I've ever said in a movie, which is from Gattaca. And I just turned around and I screamed, because I didn't save anything for the swim back, right? Which is this, this line. And it was the guy in the Kim Olajuwon jersey. And it was this funny thing. He said, you know, that he was telling me that's one of his favorite lines and it inspires him to finish the race. I'm like, dude, you just inspired me to finish the race. Well, Ethan Hawke, I'm really grateful that you took the time to come on Bullseye. Um, thank you so much for talking to me. Yes, yeah, fun to talk to you, man. Ethan Hawke has a brand new book out. It's called Rules for a Night. He's also, you know, he's in a lot of different movies that you can go see as well. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. In Casual, Michaela Watkins plays a recently divorced mother. She lives with her brother, who's depressed, maybe suicidal, and she tries to date with mostly catastrophic results. The show, by the way, is a comedy. 25 years into her acting career, Casual is Watkins' first real lead role. It's a long way from sketch at the Groundlings and on Saturday Night Live. It's hard to be funny sad or funny lonely or funny lost, but Watkins pulls it off elegantly. Here she is on her first date since her divorce on Casual. Her brother set it up on the online dating site he founded. Valerie? Hey. Wow. Hi. You're really hot. Thank you. Well, I thought you would be based on your pictures, but you never know. Oh, well. Some women have this weird obsession with trying to fix every little thing, and it just looks bad. Yes. I totally agree with that. And then here you are, aging naturally and embracing it. It's so refreshing. Thank you. Hey, do you like scotch? Um, not... Not really. You? My dad used to put a shot in my milk bottle every night before bed. Oh, that sounds like child abuse. <laughs> Is our table ready? Michaela Watkins, uh, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Oh, thank you. I'm a fan of the show. Oh, thank you. 
Okay, so I mean, I guess uh, given that the theme of casual is uh, painful and awkward dating, mm-hmm. I'm hoping that at some point in your life you've been on a painful or awkward date that you can tell me no, about. It's just been 100% smooth sailing for oh, me. Congratulations! Yeah, yeah, you know, I just really just I just set them up so I can knock them down. <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, I understand that. Or somebody sets them up for you and you knock them down, yeah. or just whatever. No, I I'm a horrible dater. I think that's why I was serial monogamous for so long because just the the you know, not knowing how things will begin or end was too horribly painful. Um, And then by the time I finally decided, okay, actually, maybe that's not a terrible thing, then I met my husband. And you're you're married, uh, but you haven't been married that long, right? Like five or six years or something, right? We met five years ago, but we've been married for two, just over two years, yeah. So what made you think that you were in a part of your life where, like, Let's make this happen. Uh, I don't – I don't – I think it was a collision course of enough things in my life had happened up to that point where when I met my husband, I just could totally appreciate everything that was amazing about him opposed to – you know, it was the one relationship I was really in where I wasn't looking over the fence to think about what might else be out there because – and not because I had exhausted everything that was out there by any stretch. I mean, I had barely just gotten started kind of dating, dating. I just thought, oh, this is going to be a new chapter. I'll have flings. That'll be fun. Um, and then I met him, and I realized it was just sort of every everything I'd ever wanted in a person. Um, and in the way we, that we relate with each other is really uh, – it's really – I'm very I'm very in love, which is nice. <laughs> The look on your face is so beatific <laughs> right now. Like you're so sincere about that. That is really nice. Um, I mean, I don't mean to sound corny. It's just uh, um, I think you just – I think that everything just happened at the right time, you know, that it was supposed to for me. And, and me, I got married sort of late in life compared to when a lot, when a lot of people do it. And I think – I I said to somebody the other day, I feel like I had to step on every single rake and get like bopped in the face. And and I wasn't one of those people who kind of came into the world having a good understanding of how everything works. Why not? What, what do you mean by that? Well, I just I was somebody who was always looking for kind of the shiniest bulb in the room. And I think that I wanted to this is um such a strange thing, but I think in some ways I was looking for probably what I wanted for myself. You know, if I found somebody who was really articulate or really um, well read, or somebody who was really uh, musical or, or really funny or whatever it was, you know, it was something that I wished I probably had more of in myself. And so I, I think by dating that, I was thinking by osmosis, it would, I would, I could touch that gold in them. And so um, somebody said to me, just a really good tip, they just said, go get it for yourself. You know, you just read more, (laughs) learn to play an instrument, (laughs) you know, do all those things. And I kind of took, had a midlife sort of, not crisis, but, you know, time in there where I did take a lot of time for myself to fulfill myself and, you know, fill myself up with all those things. And then, uh, and then I wasn't looking to to borrow traits from anybody else. When when was that that you went through that? Mid-30s, around the same time that Valerie is in the show. Um, well, she's 
No, I'm sorry. I was younger. I was probably 35 when I went through that. And um, on the show, Valerie's 39 when she's coming out of her marriage. That's right around when you were on Saturday Night Live, right? Yeah. Was it before or after or during? During. That was during. That was like there was so much happening. <laughs> I mean, that's crazy. <laughs> I know. I was crazy. I had a friend at my wedding who referred to that as my crazy time. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Michaela Watkins. She's the star of the new Hulu original series, Casual. Tell me a little bit about ending up on Saturday Night Live in a kind of unusual situation, which was, you know, I think a lot of times the people that get cast on Saturday Night Live are like 24-year-olds mm-hmm. who just like have a thing about them or whatever. I know. And uh, nailed it. You were in. You were already in your mid thirties by the time you were on SNL. It was a month before I turned thirty-seven. Yeah. So, like, was it something that you even were still thinking of as like a path in your career that could run through SNL? I mean, I think it was. You're like, well, Daryl Hammond's fifty. Yeah, Phil Hartman. Um, I think that I, I well, I had the year before I got cast. I'd been, I. I'd auditioned, you know, gone out there to test for the first time. And uh, and I felt like it went well. But And when it didn't happen, I felt like, okay, I think I think it was great to be asked, but I think that ship has sailed pretty much. And uh, so the following year when I got asked, I was like, this is crazy. That, um, neat. So I went back and auditioned again. And then when I got hired, I got hired with a 21-year-old. And so I, if I wasn't already feeling my age, I definitely felt it when – I was the new girl with a 21-year-old. And when I thought about myself at 21, I mean, I could barely tie my shoes. So I was just, it, like, 21 felt like a million years ago, especially after what I'd just been sort of going through with, you know, kind of <laughs> finding myself. But um, so it was, it, it's true. I mean, I, I, I never thought about my age a single day until I started working at SNL. And then I became really aware of it because as the new person, I was older than 90% of the cast. And it, you know, it wasn't like, I mean, you'd already been a working actress for some time. Mm-hmm. Ish. But, you you know, you weren't like, um, you know, it, it wasn't like that like year on SNL when they just all, uh, hired a bunch of professional actors to be on it. Right. Um so like you in in some ways were like a were like a pro relative to the people that were coming into that system but like it's also a completely its own thing yeah it's its own thing and um i mean if i was a pro i think it's just because i've been you know hustling and swinging the bat for a, a, you know more years than everybody else but not because i'd had you know, I'd done a lot of commercials, but a lot of the those kids on the show have done a lot of commercials, you know. I think my first sort of – I'd done a few gigs like Grey's Anatomy or, you know, I started recurring on, on old New Adventures of Old Christine, which was to that point the most exciting thing that had definitely happened to me. So um, – and, uh, and so that was, you know, just a few little guest stars. But it wasn't, that was my first series regular gig was SNL. How did you feel your age when you were there? Well, I I tried to hide it. I mean, I think I felt it because I was always trying to, I was I was I was taking a you know a adverse 
step to everything or a converse step? What is, you know, I was taking, doing the opposite action. A converse to, step. A converse step. Doing the, the opposite action to what I really wanted to do, which is I really wanted to go to bed. So instead, <laughs> I would go out drinking until 7 in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> but you were also engaging in this program of self improvement. Like, what were the what were the oh, parts of this self improvement? That had gone to hell in a handcart at that point. Uh, my self improvement. Were you like reading Madame Bovary or something? Uh, no. Why would I do? No. Um, I was I was reading a lot. Yeah, I started reading a lot of books. I started. I got really into books, uh, essays, because you know I have a short attention span. So I thought, well, you know, this will be good. And uh, I, I got yeah, I got into reading. But I had done Outward Bound. Um, do you know what that is? Outward, Outward Bound? Bound is yeah. That's like when you're uh, uh, it's like an outdoor program for troubled youth. Troubled youth. Yeah. I almost got put in that. <laughs> if it weren't for my total antipathy towards the outdoors, I think I might have ended up in that. I did a thirty and over version <laughs> of that. <laughs> that's so not real. It was real, and uh, we went to Yosemite for ten days, and like right when I got back was when I got SNL. So. I was uh, really fit, and I knew how to survive in the woods. So I'd say that's pretty that's, – that's something. How did you come to sign up for that? <laughs> Were you – did your, um, did your vocational counselor at the community college tell you about <laughs> it where you were taking French cooking classes? <laughs> uh, sorry. I'm laughing right in your microphone. Um I don't remember. I think maybe I got an email or maybe I saw an ad online and I thought, oh, I always wanted to do that as a, you know, in high school. And I thought going into the woods for a few days, you know, 10 days would, would, um, would, you would, I felt no matter what, you won't come out the same. What were the other people there like? I mean, all I'm picturing is just those kind of like central casting recovering addicts, basically. Like just <laughs> grisly are, people. That is funny. That's what I was afraid of. And um, and that's also what I was a little excited about. I just thought, this is going to be amazing. I'm going to... Because that's the <laughs> well, other... I like sinuous guys. <laughs> <laughs> I'm into knuckle tattoos, so... Um, it, was, it was a strange bunch. We were a small group. Um, the... Uh, one guy in particular um, who I really uh, liked was this um, Asian man. He uh, lived in San Francisco, and he uh, was an astrophysicist. But he—that was his passion, and that's what he majored in. But he was a—he um, was working in um, uh, what you, mutual funds. What do you call it when you're a? When, he was like an investment counselor. An investment an investment yeah, like guy. A, yeah. He was like a like a sort of a Wall Street. Guy, I don't know business numbers, money, and, and so, he owned ties. Yeah, he was the first person you'd met in your life. He was owned neckties. He was a businessman, but he. It was two thousand eight. Remember, so the economy. This was the summer of two thousand eight, uh, or just going into the fall, and the economy was taking a huge downturn, and. Right as we embark, you have to give over your cell phones. And he's watching on his phone the economy crash. And he's having just this panic attack as he's going in. And, you know, we're putting on our backpacks and heading up the mountain. And he's just, he can't, he, like, handing over his cell phone was like handing over his firstborn. And he knew that he didn't think he would have a job when he would come back. And, um, 
And after 10 days, you know, the, the last night we're lying, we decided to sleep without putting up a tarp or anything. And so we, we slept just under the stars as sort of our final night. And he explained everything we were looking at to the point that I had a little bit of a nervous breakdown because <laughs> we're just nothing. We are nothing. But uh, when he was explaining it, you just saw a different guy than the ball of stress that was walking up the mountain. And I think he, uh, if I if I recall, I think he changed his career path after that. Did you get the experience that you wanted out of it? I think that if there's one thing you, this sounds so serious, but if there's one thing you kind of get is the biggest thing that I walked away with was acceptance, that you just can't control anything. And I think once I stopped trying to hold on to everything and let go, then everything arranged itself the way it should be. I'll finish my conversation with Michaela Watkins after a break. And don't worry, gang, there is still time for us to hear some stories about Wet Hot American Summer. It's a top priority on this show. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Thanks for listening to Bullseye. NPR's brand new politics podcast is where NPR's political reporters talk to you like they talk to each other. With weekly roundups, short takes on news, and reporting from every stop on the campaign trail, you don't have to keep up with politics to know what's happening this election year. You just have to keep up with them. Listen and subscribe to the NPR Politics Podcast at npr.org slash podcasts and on the NPR One app. Let's be honest. We live in a world with too much media. You need a podcast on the front lines figuring out what's great. We're here for you. We're Pop Rocket. I am Guy Branham. I'm a comedian. I'm Winter Mitchell. I call myself a digital strategist. <laughs> I'm Oliver Wang, academic and disc junkie. Margaret Wappler, je suis as journaliste. <laughs> and we watch, listen to, and read everything so that you don't have to. And then we tell you about all the things that you'll love to love. Find us in iTunes or wherever you download podcasts. Pop Rocket. Every Wednesday from Maximum You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Michaela Watkins. You might know her from her roles in Trophy Wife, The New Adventures of Old Christine, or from her season on Saturday Night Live. She's now the star of the Hulu original series, Casual. So did you have the expectation in your family that to be, like, uh, artistic was a normal thing? No, it was not. I'm not sure my dad still knows what I do yet. I think he does. He, it was very cute. He called me this week to say, you know, I mean, I've been doing all this publicity for casual, and he called me this week and <laughs> just said, Mickey, I was watching the World Series, the Mets versus the Royals, and they had a commercial for Hulu, and they showed your face. And I realized, I, think, I thought it was a real moment where I thought my dad really maybe understood that I was on TV. <laughs> You're like, hey, Dad, I was on Saturday Night Live. Yeah. No, when he came to see SNL, he, he came to do a live show, and he all he could talk about was how they moved the scenery around. It was just he, how quickly they set up a, a, a set, you know, during the commercial. I which mean, is, that is really impressive. I have to say, it's such an, it, is, it is one of my favorite things about the, the show, is watching that organized chaos. Like everyone on Saturday Night Live is really funny, too. I mean, that's another nice thing about Saturday Night Live, and there's usually a great band there. All that is just missed on my dad. He's just like, the sets got set up so quickly. There was no set, and then there was a set. What was it like to be fired from Saturday Night Live? It's like a bummer, you know, any kind of 
any kind of rejection is always a bummer. Yeah. It was a little surreal because because there was two things happening at the same time. One was I never really quite fully believed that I was there in the first place because it just was so crazy. And it all happened at like such a whirlwind. My my path, I mean, I've talked about it before, but it's like my path is just was just so quick. I mean, I was shooting, like I said, old Christine that night, got a call. It was on a plane a few hours later. You know, I had a whole life here that I just had to somehow wrap up in minutes, hours, and get there and start. We, I, I showed up, I, you know, I took a red eye and I showed up to a table read and I hadn't slept. I hadn't eaten. I was totally freaking out like, what just happened? Why, I'm in New York. I'm sitting, I'm sitting next to Will Forte and Andy Samberg right now at a table reading sketches that I'm about to do. And then immediately went into like fittings and just getting fitted for wigs and having, you know, the, the plaster on your face for any kind of fa- facial prosthetics that they might need to do. And at one point, you know, they want, Steph Myers walks up and says, hey, do you want to do Ariana Huffington this week? And I was like, uh, okay. So then I started writing that. And then, um, and then I remember I just wanted to go to sleep. I hadn't slept yet. It was now two nights, three nights or something. I hadn't slept yet. And, uh, I just tore myself away um, at one point just to go pee. I just wanted to go to the bathroom. I thought if I could just sit in the bathroom for five seconds and just, like, get my head together, I maybe I could even catch a cat nap or something, you know. And I went into the bathroom, and even the bathrooms aren't are, like, communal, you know. There's no women's or men's. It's just, like, stalls and anybody. Comes. And I was just, like, peeing. And somebody walked in and said, hey, Michaela, are you in here? And I was like, they found me. (laughs) like, yes. (laughs) Yep. And they said, you know, so-and-so wants to talk to you. And I said, okay. Like, I'm peeing. Can I just pee? You know? Um, So it was just so – it was so crazy. And then it it just felt like it never let up. You know, there was never that break where you just go, holy crap. Um, and so by the time I left, which was, you know, at the end of the season, well, at, at the end of the summer, actually, right before, you know, I would start again, uh, I, I, I hadn't quite felt like I was, I was even there. I mean, I was just starting to feel like, oh, second season will be nice, you know, because I'll, I'll, maybe I'll feel more like my feet are on the ground. But um, so it was all very surreal. It was all whirlwindy. And I think it wasn't until... I don't know, six months, eight months after I'd been back here in L.A. that it hit me. And then I and then I was like, oh, uh, that really sucked. I mean, it seems to me like if you do in the world of sketch and improv, mm-hmm. like to be cast on Saturday Night Live is to have succeeded. Mm-hmm. There's no I mean, there's plenty of show business success beyond Saturday Night Live. Mm-hmm. But Saturday Night Live is the top of the pile in that particular world and has totally. been for 40 years. And so you get this thing, and it's, it's, I think in your case, maybe somewhat unexpectedly, given the context, you know, you had maybe thought, well, I'm just going to be doing different, you know, I'm going to be acting on sitcoms and whatever. Mm-hmm. You get this approval, mm-hmm. like, oh, okay. I'm that thing that mm-hmm. you're supposed the gold standard of the thing that I do. Mm-hmm. And then, wait a minute, am I not that thing? Yeah. You know, I, 
it's it is such a funny thing and it always felt like my calling and then but other things always feel like my calling too and i think everything shook out the way it was sort of supposed to i mean I, I think I was supposed to be there for a year, maybe two. I don't know if I was supposed to be there for seven to ten years. I don't know. I know that I love what I'm doing now. You know, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't in retrospect, I, I'm happy that it's gone this way. I don't know what would have happened if I'd stayed there. Maybe I'd be, you know, I don't know, a Ghostbuster? I don't know. <laughs> but, um, but I loved my time there. I have no regrets. I felt like I... I felt like I worked really hard. I felt like I played really hard. I felt like I, um, like I said, I mean, I definitely was burning the candle on both ends. I was working hard and I was playing hard. And I think that's like the best you can do. I loved everybody that I worked with. There wasn't a dud in the bunch. I just, they're all still very near and dear to my heart. So, I, I mean, I don't, I don't have any regrets. And I think that's, I think what would have been really hard is if I had regrets. What I, what what was hard was just feeling like someone you respect, you know, doesn't necessarily want to hang out with you on their show, and that is like a icky, icky feeling. I think for anybody. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the actress Michaela Watkins. Her new series Casual is available now on Hulu. I want to play something because because casual is um, uh, real acting and you're really good at it on the show. Um, I want to play something that is really silly um, and just funny, which is you were in the um, you were in the Netflix series uh, Wet Hot American Summer (laughs) uh, first day of camp, uh, which you, there are look there were a lot of famous funny people in that series some of whom had been in the film and some some of whom were added for the show like you were and you were so funny I, I honestly thought it was the standout performance in the thing so i'm i'm just going to play this clip so there's a camp production of a kind of like a a futuristic roller disco type musical about new york and you are brought in. John Slattery comes in as the director. He's like a pretentious New York theater guy. And you come in as this choreographer named Rhonda. Hiya. Sorry I'm late. Guy jumped in front of the F train. Everyone, this is my assistant, Rhonda. She's coming from the city to help us out tonight. She's going to teach you the new choreography. All right. This one's with a hitch kick, right, into a ball change. Don't let your ball change look like a box step, and your grapevine needs to travel. Huh? You got that? From the top, guys, I want pizzazz. I want oomph. I want hips, hips, hips. Energy, okay? From one, no marking. Five, six, seven, eight. Electric knife! This is Rhonda. She's from the city. Like that's all. <laughs> yeah. That's all the creed I need. <laughs> all the cred. Somebody jumped in front of the F train is my favorite. <laughs> oh, David Wade said, "You need an entrance line, something very New Yorky." He said, "Surprise me." <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh man, that is a great line. It must be it must be fun because you know tr- uh, Trophy Wife, which is a, a very funny show that you were on uh, on a network uh, a year two years ago. Um, was also like you know it's a it's a network sitcom, so there's a there's a certain amount of joking and and uh, broadness, but it was it was uh, pretty specific for a net- network sitcom, pretty act acting y. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it must be fun to get to do something like that. There's just like just bring every joke muscle you have, like oh, every laugh yeah. muscle. You just don't yeah, don't I, leave anything on the table. I love how you just said that. That was a great way to put it because. I did. I felt like somebody just gave me, you know, a box of assorted donuts and was like, have at them. Because it just it was uh, my character just I, like by definition of who she was, she was everything. She could do it. She had every job. She did everything. She's, you know, at some point in her life, she's experienced every possible thing she could have you know, she said, oh, you know, no matter what was brought up, there's some segue into how she had at some point uh, done that or experienced it. And so there literally was no rules for my character. So I could say anything. I think at one point there was a draft where I I had been living in a cave. (laughs) 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 And so it was so fun. And they let me, you know, they let me play big time on it. You know, I got to improvise a bit and I don't know if it was to the writer's chagrin or delight, but um but it was it was so fun. Just like tough pro. Go. <laughs> it was just I mean, and everybody on it was such a was such a great, you know, pro. So it just you know, it just made your game look really good and and just to play with Bradley Whitford and Marsh Gay Harden and Mullen and, you know, Mullen Ackerman. It was just, and my son, Albert's eye, it was just, they were all, all of them, every single person on that cast was so top of their game. You've been a working actress for, you know, dozen plus years since you were like 30. You were acting before that. Mm. Um, yeah, was I? I don't know. I can't do the, the math. <laughs> you're the lead. You're the lead on a TV show. Um, uh, you know, and you're the lead on this TV show. Mm-hmm. Um, do you feel secure now? Meaning, like, do you f- like? I'm talking about, like, oh, I'm definitely doing the thing that I'm supposed to be doing. I definitely like have succeeded to the place where I want to be mm-hmm. and it and it's unlikely to be taken away from me or whatever. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I definitely love what I'm doing. I definitely feel that this role in this show feels like such a enormously wonderful fit to me. And I know how tenuous that was. I know that the only reason that I'm doing it is because somebody as um, strongly opinionated as Jason Reitman was at the helm of this and was able to convince everybody around him that this is the right cast for the show. And I know that without somebody fighting, and not that he, you know, Hulu is very supportive, I got to say, and so is Lionsgate. But I'm sure, you know, having not, been the lead of the show. I'm sure there was a lot of pushback and um, and 
gratefully and thankfully it's you know it it all worked out and you know but i i do realize that it's because it just so happened that jason felt that i was the right voice for that part and i think there's a million ways that could have gone differently and i wouldn't and i'd still be um looking for that home but this feels like a home and, and in that way yes incredibly uh good and satisfying um it got a second season. Yay. That's great. Now, so in that way, I feel secure unless there's, you know, God forbid something crazy happens. Um, that I'm set and I don't have to worry anymore? No. I don't feel that way even a little bit. I was just, you know, it's funny. Somebody said to me, if you could tell your 18-year-old self, if you could just show your 18-year-old self like this poster or whatever, you know, happening right now. Don't you wish you could just do that? And I said, absolutely not. Because if at any point I felt like everything was going to be okay, I wouldn't have said yes to the millions of terrible jobs that I did (laughs) that got me here. And it never would have worked this way, (laughs) ever. But that's terrifying. I mean, that's like a (laughs) lot of pain to put yourself through. I mean, it's not pain. It's like that's the the process. That's like that's – it's not – it's not – the destination. It's like all of it is, you know, uh, I love how Cheryl Strade said this once on her, in her um, Dear Sugar blog. She said, she said, every job you do, it's all part of your becoming, you know, and everything I've done is all, it's all informed the next thing. It's, I've learned. I mean, it's all been little steps, but I can tell you each stupid job I had where I thought, I don't want to go. It, it, it turned out something, you know, I met somebody or there was, um, a good, you know, joke that, you know, people liked or, you know, or something. There is something to take away from every single job. Some people get to skip steps, right? Some people get to just, you know, go from here, you know, like I said, be, you know, 24 and get on SNL. That's great. You know, that wasn't, I had a, I didn't get to step, skip, you know, I had a step on every single step, but I needed to because that's the way my brain works is I had to learn, 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 learn. And, you know, here I am now. I don't know what's coming. I hope it's more goodness. Uh, I'm, I'd really like that. But I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Well, Michaela Watkins, thank you so much for being <laughs> on Bullseye. It was really great to get to talk to you. It was really nice to talk to you. Michaela Watkins. She's the star of the new Hulu original series, Casual. Every week, we like to close the show with a recommendation from me, your host. It's the Outshot. This was hip hop in 1986. That's Run DMC, if you don't know. And it's thrilling. Big beats bold look and you know about as much subtlety as can be mustered from two guys who are basically yelling nursery rhymes at you in 1986 run dmc still represented the new school the rappers who came after the groundbreakers of the late 70s and early 80s and they were the group that made rap a mainstream phenomenon They weren't just rocking in clubs. They were on MTV. But by 1987, they sounded ancient because 
1987, one rapper was about to change everything. I came in the door, I said it before. I never let the mic magnetize me no more, but it's biting me, fighting me, inviting me to rhyme. I can't hold it back, I'm looking for the line. Taking off my coat, clearing my throat. The rhyme will be kicking it till I hit my last note. My mind remains to find all kind of ideas. Self-esteem makes it seem like a thought took years to build. But still say a rhyme after the next one. Prepared, never scared, I'll just bless one. And you know that I'm the solo whiz, so Eric B, make him clap to this. Rakim created the modern MC. In the beginning, rap was a fun side dish to a great DJ. When, say, Busy B stepped up to the mic in 1982, his job was basically to say some fun stuff to help make the party fun. Rap had simple structures. Like, think of the Beastie Boys, who never quite lost their 1985 flow. Da 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 right? Even rappers with more complicated rhyme schemes, like Kulmodi, for example, were still pretty straightforward. You hit that last syllable hard, and you kind of yelled so everyone could hear you. And honestly, I don't mean to diminish any of that. I love it. It's just that there was a next level, and it was Rakim that took hip-hop there. I ain't no joke. I used to let the mic smoke. Now I slam it when I'm done and make sure it's broke. When I'm gone, no one gets on. Cause I won't let nobody press up and mess up the scene I set. I like to stand in a crowd and watch the people wonder. Damn, but think about it, then you understand. I'm just an addict addicted to music. Maybe it's a habit. I gotta use it. Even if it's jazz or the quiet storm. I hook a beat up, convert it into hip hop form. Write a rhyme and graffiti in every show you see me in. Deep concentration, cause I'm no comedian. Jokers are wild if you want to I treat you like a child and you're gonna be named Another enemy, not even a friend of me Cause you'll get fried in the end when you pretend to be competing Cause I just put your mind on pause and I complete when You compare my rhyme with yours I wake you up and as I stare in your face You seem stunned, remember me? The one you got your idea from But soon you start to suffer The tune will get rougher When you start to stutter That's when you had enough of Fighting it'll make you choke You can't provoke, you can't cope You should've broke because I ain't no joke What's so special about Rakim? It's like the difference between vaudeville singers and Bing Crosby. Vaudeville singers, Al Jolson or whatever, were declamatory, maudlin. They were broadcasting, broadly. Bing Crosby used the mic to get close to you. He played and whispered and bobbed and weaved. That line in hip-hop, the one that Rakim drew, is just as clear. Rakim was intimate and shifty. Instead of emphatically hitting square on the beat, he lets the words dance. His voice is powerful, but it's also low-key. He doesn't need to yell. And the rhythm skips and slides as his bars and sentences come in and out of alignment. He says it on the record. He's the microphone soloist. His words are an instrument. They complement and counterpoint the beat. And besides all of that, and this is important too... He makes it all sound effortless. It's been a long time. I shouldn't have left you. Without a strong rhyme to step to. Think of how many weeks shows you slept through. 
time's up. I'm sorry I kept you thinking of this. You keep repeating your mess. The rhyme from the microphone solo with. So you sit by the radio and on the dial soon. As you hear it, pump up the volume. Dance with the speaker till you hear it blow. Then plug in a headphone, cause here it go. It's a full letter word when it's heard to control your body to dance. So, dot text the tempo like a red alert. Reach it your reflex and let it work. When this is playing, you can't get stuck with the steps. So can say, and I'ma still come up with a gift to be swift. Follow the leader, the rhyme ago. Deaf with the record that was mixed a long time ago. It could be done, but only I could do it. For those that could dance and clap your hands to it. I start to think, and then I sink into the paper like I was in. When I'm writing, I'm trapped in between the line. I escape when I finish the rhyme. I got soul, soul, soul. Actually, let's run that last bit again. This is one of my favorite lyrics. I start to think, and then I sink into the paper like I was in. When I'm writing, I'm trapped in between the line. I escape when I finish the rhyme. I got soul, soul, soul. Sometimes people say rap is poetry. I disagree. I think it's rap. That description there, that little bit of Rakim's verse, is about writing, but... It's also about the feeling of the union of words, rhythm, and melody. Rakim was poetic, but more than that, he was musical, deft, elegant. And nearly 30 years later, hip-hop is still executing his master plan. That's my outshot. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Julia Smith. Production fellow at Maximum Fun is Abadionex Perello. Senior producer is Colin Anderson. Our new production assistant is Christian Duenas. Welcome, Christian. All our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Our thanks to the Go Team and their label Memphis Industries for our theme music. Thanks this week to Neil Rauch at NPR New York for his engineering help. We're going on tour this November. We'll be in Los Angeles, Boston, New York, Philadelphia, and D.C. this week and next, putting on live tapings of this show with interviews, music, comedy, and more. We've got William H. Macy plus Matt Walsh and Brian Husky of HBO's Veep in L.A. We're going to have Tavi Gevinson from Rookie Magazine, David Cross from Arrested Development and With Bob and David, Mission of Burma, former Congressman Barney Frank, Ray Suarez, Dan Deacon, and a whole bunch more. Get your tickets at bullseyetour.com. It is going to be awesome, I promise. And if you want to hear about more cool culture stuff, check out our sister podcast, Pop Rocket. It's a roundtable discussion of everything that's great in popular culture, hosted by comedian Guy Branham. It is fun. It is funny. It is really great. Uh, This week, Mental Illness Happy Hour host Paul Gilmartin joins the group to discuss mental health in popular culture. Pop Rocket. Find it wherever you download podcasts. It's great. I love it. You'll love it, too. Pop Rocket. Anyway, that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. NPR.